the lag in time between when you finish and then when your book is published. And I was preparing you know, places I might like to speak to. At the very top of the list was uh, Francis Tavern, where George Washington uh, had one of his most famous moments at the end of the war. So I am uh, very happy that this worked out. I um, would have liked to come to visit in person, but we'll have to save that for, for another day. I'm happy I'm able to talk to the, uh, to the, the membership here uh, from my, my own home here in Orlando. So I'm gonna to talk to you today about the Newberg Conspiracy. And I have a PowerPoint uh, presentation to open up and share to everybody. Uh, so what I would like to do first is to um, give you a little bit of background on the story itself. And then I wanna look at uh, some of the evidence that's usually offered in favor of uh, arguing that what happened was a conspiracy. And I wanna explain some of my thinking that um, has led me to question um, how, how strongly we can make that argument that a conspiracy was going on. And so that is sort of the major contribution uh, of my book as a whole. In my research, I found some reasons to, to doubt that a, a true conspiracy was unfolding. But first, to set the situation before we get into the, the details of uh, plotting and the various machinations, if any were present. Uh, the situation at the very end of the war is what I'm talking about. So the, the main action that leads up to the, to the Newburgh conspiracy uh, takes place in the last two years of the war. The American Revolution has this kind of strange period at the end where the last major campaign is uh, Yorktown, which ends in a American victory. We get a huzzah for the American victory. Well, everybody's muted, so I can't tell. Uh, but I'll assume that you're enthusiastic for the American victory. But that doesn't end the war. And there's another two years that goes on as uh, the various participants negotiate the peace. And during that two-year period, from seven, fall of 1781 through the fall of 1783, when the news of the final treaty arrives in the United States, uh, it's a kind of in limbo. The war's not over. And that's what Washington has to remind a lot of Americans throughout that period, that the war is not over. Can I get a boo for that? Okay, there's a boo. Uh, the British still occupy um, ma major positions in the United States, places like Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, and of course, most importantly, New York City. Uh, it's the last, uh, last major place that the British will leave at the very end of 1783. So even if there's not active fighting in the sense of large campaigns, the British still remain uh, a dangerous enemy and the conclusion of the war still remains in doubt. And it's with that kind of anxiety of, is the war over? Well, it can't be over if the British are still here, but it's not really going on either because there's not a lot of major fighting going on. So, so just what, what is it? Well, it's in between, and that's the anxiety that people have to live, live through. And again, Washington is always reminding people the war is still going on, we still need to prepare, we can't relax. He has to tell, say that over and over and over again. During this period, a number of problems come to the surface. Now, these are problems that were always present during the war, but have been kind of tamped down. They've been buried uh, because the urgency of fighting the war and not losing to the British always took precedence. These are problems kind of long, sort of more long range in scope um, that come up now at the end of the, towards the end of the war when kind of the pressure is off. 
So once the pressure of winning the next battle, surviving another day, once that pressure is removed, then these problems come to the surface. And as they come to the surface, they become more obviously dangerous than they had been previously, at least recognized as dangerous compared to earlier in the war. One major category of these problems has to do with the nation's finances. Uh, the United States paid for the war in a couple of ways. Uh, I should mention that the war was much more expensive than anybody could ever imagine. It is just completely outstripped anybody's wildest, wildest imaginations of what the war would cost. So it's much more expensive than anyone thought. One way that the uh, United States paid for the war was simply by printing money. And they started printing money at the beginning of the war. And then when it ran out, they printed some more. And then some more and more and more and more and a little more uh, until finally co the Continental Congress realized that this was completely out of hand, that the value had so depreciated that it was completely worthless. In fact, it was worth as worthless because they were wasting perfectly good blank paper by printing money on it. At least if the, the paper's blank, you can still do something with it. You can write stuff on it, print a newspaper, whatever. Once you put the money on it, it can only be money. And nobody wanted it because the value had so shrunk over time. Yeah, that, that's the only special effect I have in the, in the whole lecture. That was, that, that was pretty great, right? Um, so the value of the money had shrunk over time. And that affects everything. Uh, any, uh, the, the runaway inflation that was experienced. Uh, the Continental Congress stopped printing money, uh, not even at the end of the war. Uh, still in the 1770s, they stopped printing the money because it just wasn't worth it anymore. Another uh, major fiscal problem is repaying debts. The United States had borrowed a lot of money, uh, principally from France is the major uh, foreign benefactor of the United States. Uh, the French were extremely uh, generous. Uh, they were prodigal really in giving money to the United States. And the United States really didn't pay them back during the war. Uh, and then so the Americans, they say things like, well, you have to give us more money this year because if you don't give us more money, we won't be able to pay you back from last year. And you think about that for a second. Wait, wait a minute. France is supposed to give more money so you could pay them back from the year before, like throwing more and more loans at the problem. So that was another problem situation. There are also uh, loans that were taken out uh, by the government uh, and money borrowed from uh, Americans. So people in the United States were also owed, owed money uh, various amounts. And so those are some of the fiscal problems that emerged. Some other problems that emerged is finding a political solution to those fiscal problems. And that becomes an issue because of the status of the government under the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation went into effect in spring of 1781. It was finally approved by all 13 states. There had been one holdout uh, to, towards, uh, towards approving the Articles of Confederation, and that was the state of Maryland. And Maryland held out for its approval because it was in a fight with Virginia over lands that both states claimed uh, in the western part uh, of those states. They're fighting over that. And the only leverage Maryland had is, was with, withholding their approval for the Articles of Confederation. Well, that gives you some sense, hints at the problems that were uh, seen under the Articles of Confederation. The states were powerful and they didn't have to agree with each other. And there was no central government above them to kind of force any kind of anything to happen. The best that the Congress could do 
was really act as a kind of diplomatic body, intermediating between the various states, persuading them to get along. And you can guess how that went. Uh, when it came to financial matters, Congress uh, got money to spend uh, by sending kind of it's like sending in a, a bill to each state. This is the portion of the taxes that you owe. So the Congress would set a budget. They divvy it up and say, "Here, each state, this is what you're going to. This is what you need to pay. This is your share." And each of the states, of course, had all kinds of elaborate reasons why the share they were given was was just too was just wrong. It was too much. And their neighboring states weren't paying enough. And every state felt that way, that they were paying too much, it was unfair, and other states weren't, weren't shouldering their full burden. Now, some states had good reason for this. Um, you know, if your major seaport is occupied by the British, that's going to dampen, uh, dampen your ability to pay taxes. So that's uh, Georgia and South Carolina and New York. Okay, that makes sense. But every other state had an excuse too. And very, uh, there's very little money that's actually sent from the states to the central government to pay any of its debts. And that was the structure of the Articles of Confederation, that the states were strong and Congress was weak. Congress was more like the United Nations, a kind of diplomatic body that has some kind of military purpose that it can get together and, and UN does peacekeeping, um, peacekeeping forces. The United States, of course, you know, had, had the Continental Army that they all, all the states pitched in to contribute to. But in terms of directing policy among the individual states, well, that's something you need to persuade them to do, not force. Uh, one of the things you may have noticed at the very beginning of what I said, I said the Articles of Confederation went into effect in 1781. So a question I like to ask my students is, well, the uh, independence is declared in 1776. What, what happened in the next five years? I mean, where's the, what was the form of government in between? And of course, the trick question, there really wasn't an official form of government. Congress made stuff up as they went along. And you can guess how that went. Um, sometimes it went okay, but most of the time they got bogged down in details and very inefficient decision-making. So that's the, some of the, the political problems that emerged, make it very difficult to solve any of the other problems, especially the fiscal ones. Meanwhile, the Army. Most of the Continental Army is encamped in the Hudson Valley, in what was called the Hudson Highlands. This is around what is today Newburgh, New York, okay? uh, but also uh, Washington's headquarters were in Newburgh, but uh, most of the men are also in New Windsor, and then in West Point, so kind of scattered uh, in that area along the Hudson River. They are there to keep an eye on the British who still occupied New York. And the army takes up that position following Yorktown. So from you know, early 1782, late 1781 through 1783, that's where the army is there, just kind of sitting and waiting. They train sometimes, but they do a lot of waiting and being bored and just waiting for something to happen. That's most of the army there. This is a, a picture from the period. Uh, I believe is, um, a, is it Pierre L'Enfant, the, the man who designed uh, Washington DC, he did this, this, uh, this large uh, the painting here. Uh, this is, as I mentioned uh, in passing, Washington's headquarters uh, in Newburgh, New York. So this is what it looks like today. I, took, I visited in 2016 um, and I took the, this picture here. So Washington took over this house. It had belonged to a, an old Dutch widow. And uh, when Washington moved in, 
She told the officers who were getting things all set up. She said she couldn't live there with Washington. The, uh, the house wasn't big enough for the two of them. So that's Washington's headquarters. Uh, the main, the main uh, bulk of the army was located in New Windsor. And this is also a state historic site today. Uh, I mentioned this was a state historic site, I think. Uh, so you can go and visit that. Uh, this is the New Windsor Cantonment. You can visit there too. And this is a replica of where the office, of, I'm sorry, where the, uh, the men lodged. Okay, so this is one of the huts they built. Now, first class to me, this looks okay. I, I would camp out there, you know, maybe not over the winter, and maybe you want to run some plumbing in there if, if I was going to stay in there. Uh, you know, wired up electricity. I, I could do without the Wi-Fi for a few months. Uh, it looks okay. Until you realize that it was meant to house 10 to 12 men. It's about a thousand square feet. Okay. Um, well, I don't know. If you're if you're near if you're in New York City, a thousand square feet for an apartment might be might be enormous. Um, but uh, you can imagine what, what that's like. So you're sharing that with 10, 11 other guys, all all winter long. Okay. Again, without indoor plumbing and all those kinds of things. Okay. So it's probably more miserable than you would have thought. Uh, as I mentioned, this is also a state historic site, so you can visit this too. It's a replica though, so they built this in the 1960s. Uh, these, were, these weren't meant to last when they were built, so they were torn down very early on. Um, but that's, that's there today, the replica. Now, with a lot of time on their hands, the soldiers, the officers in particular, they talk to each other and they think about what's going to happen when the war ends. They can see that the, the peace is coming. And by 1782, late 1782, 1783, they're starting to expect it, you know, kind of any time. The news from Europe is that negotiations are underway and things are happening. Things are moving forward. The officers in particular have uh, two categories of, of things they really want, things they're upset about. Number one, they hadn't really been paid during the war. And when they were paid, it was in money that quickly depreciated. So they wanted back pay that they were owed, and they wanted that, that pay corrected for the depreciation. Okay, they didn't want to be paid, you know, whatever the number was from 1777, they'll be laughably small by 1783 because of depreciation. So they wanted a kind of settling of accounts and an adjustment made to take care of inflation so that they would get the full value out of, of, of their pay. The other thing that officers wanted were pensions. On two occasions during the war, there was a rash of uh, officer resignations. A big number of officers were just resigning. They were fed up, their families were suffering, they weren't being paid, they couldn't provide, send any money home. I mean, just, it was too much, just too much for them to sacrifice. So Congress, as an inducement, held out, well, if you guys serve till the end of the war, then we'll pay you a pension afterwards. And that will, they'll make your sacrifice worthwhile. That happened twice during the war. Uh, and the second time, the officers got a promise of half pay for life. So whatever they retire on, whatever rank they're at, they'll get half of that, that pay for the rest of their lives. Now, okay, that, that sounds fine. Uh, and the officers agreed to that. Uh, but now by 17, late 1782, early 1783, the officers can tell the war is ending soon. And they can see that Congress has done nothing to set aside a fund of money to actually pay those pensions. When they promised earlier of the war, okay, it didn't matter, but now the end is here, 
where's the money going to come from? Uh, the officers can see that there is no money set aside. There's no money coming in. What are they going to do? So the officers are afraid that they're not going to be get their back pay or anything with their pensions. Now the officers not the officers are gentlemen, and gentlemen aren't supposed to necessarily be concerned about things like money. But gentlemen need to live like gentlemen, and they need to buy the clothes of a gentleman, and they need to support the, the domestic servant staff of a gentleman, and they need to go home in the style of a gentleman. If they show up in their hometown in rags, people will laugh at them and say, hey, I thought you were a gentleman off to war. You're, you're just that same butcher's son you always were. You're not a gentleman. You're not anything special after all. So they want to be able to have their future secured so that their status as gentlemen can be secured. So that's anxiety that the officers in particular have as the war seems to be winding down. The officers organize their complaints and communicate them to Congress in a, a formal systematic fashion in December of 1782. They write a formal memorial to Congress and they send a couple of officers to deliver it and kind of be on hand to see that Congress gets the message. Um, this this, um, this, uh, this um, memorial, some of the key lines I have here, in case you can't read the uh, 18th century handwriting. This is actually pretty good. This is in the handwriting of uh, Samuel Shaw, who was a aide to General Henry Knox. Knox was commander at West Point at, at this period. So th this isn't too bad. Uh, and it says, uh, a, key, a, key, a key passage here, our distresses are now brought to a point. We have borne all that men can bear. Our property is extended, our private resources are at an end, and our friends are wearied out and disgusted with our incessant applications. Then it goes on to conclude, the uneasiness of the soldiers for want of pay is great and dangerous. Any further experiments on their patients may have fatal effects. So that's the message that they're sending to Congress. Things are bad, soldiers are gonna get out of hand, don't make us wait any longer, or the result is going to be really bad. This memorial that they sent to Congress. Now, this, the officers, the army waits in the Hudson Highlands there, and they wait, and they wait a couple of months. And it looks like really nothing's happening. They've made this, this uh, they delivered this, this letter, and if they expected Congress to act on this immediately, they were mistaken. Congress does not act on it immediately. Uh, they have, you know, innumerable other things to do. I mean, they, it's not like they just ignored it. They're kind of working on the problem alongside 20 other problems. Congress moves very slowly. In early March, uh, the officers' frustrations boil over and a crisis breaks out in camp. And that crisis is precipitated or breaks into the open via an anonymous letter that circulates throughout the, uh, all of, wherever the, uh, the, the army is encamped in the Hudson Highlands. It's an anonymous letter and it calls on the officers to meet and to discuss sending another message to Congress, more strongly worded than the first one. And really, you know, strong arming Congress, putting it to them now or never, this is what you have to do. You have to help us. If it's not now, then bad things are really going to happen. This anonymous letter, one of the, the key passages I have here, it's, it, it uh, counsels the officers to change the milk and water style of your last memorial, assume a bolder tone, decent but lively. Right? So send this message to Congress. It continues at the very end. 
uh, tell Congress that the slightest mark of indignity from Congress now must operate like the grave and part you forever. Okay. So you know, don't put us off anymore. Don't make us wait. Don't go back on your promises. If you do, we don't, we're not going to have anything more to do with you. It is going to part us forever. That's the message that the, um, that the letter recommends sending, this anonymous letter that circulates through camp in uh, early March of 1783. Washington's response. When Washington hears about this letter, uh, the, the only description I have of Washington's reaction just says two words. It says, Washington was amazingly agitated. Now, if you know anything about George Washington, you may know that he had an awful temper. I mean, really bad temper. He kept it mostly buttoned up, but when it exploded, it exploded. Um, so you can kind of imagine, he must have been screaming, yelling, and you can probably hear him far outside the walls of that uh, stone house. Those, uh, that, that looks pretty thick there, those walls there, but you can probably hear George outside. I would really have hated to be the man who had to deliver that message to Washington. Like, uh, you know, what's in the mail today? Well, there's just this anonymous letter uh, calling uh, all the officers to meet outside the chain of command. Uh, to send a, a possibly threatening letter to Congress, uh, yeah, that, uh, that couldn't have gone over very well. Now, that's privately. Publicly, Washington, of course, is more composed. In the next day's orders, Washington uh, cancels the officers' meeting, directs them, you will not meet today. That, that was the original schedule. They're going to meet on the next day. Washington, however, reschedules the meeting. He tells them that they can have their meeting uh, at the end of the week, on the Saturday of that week, and after they've had time to cool off, he tells them that they will uh, engage in some mature deliberations and they'll decide what measures are best calculated to attain the object that they are after. The key there is giving them some time to cool down and telling them to deliberate maturely. To think this over, don't just fly off the handle because you're angry. But that's what Washington does publicly, calms things down. On the day, the, the day of the... Um, the day of the, of the uh, meeting is March 15th, 1783. And of course, if you know your classics and your Shakespeare, that is a day full of all kinds of ominous uh, meanings. I think, however, it's just a coincidence that it was March 15th, this, this climactic meeting. It just happened to be the Saturday of that week. And that's just the way the calendar fell. Okay? So yeah, it's just, it's just coincidence. Uh, this is where the officers met. It was a building that some of the officers called the Temple of Virtue. And this is, again, a, a replica that was reconstructed at the, at the state historic site so you can visit today. Uh, Washington did not call it the Temple of Virtue. He simply called it the new building because it was a new building. It has just been finished about a month before. And George needed a little bit more imagination in his uh, names for buildings there. Okay, so that was the new building, or if you have a, a uh, grander sentiment, the Temple of Virtue. This is what it looks like inside. So kind of, you know, low roof and it was really, it was built kind of um, for a, a multi-purpose space. So you could have uh, receptions there, you could have chapel on Sundays, you could have lectures or, or meetings. Uh, there's office space, you can see there's a, a door, a room at the end. There's another room like that at the other end. There's some storage space, okay. So just, you know, a multi-function kind of space. On that particular day, uh, those benches would not have been there. So the officers would have just stood when they came into the room. That's so the parks, uh, the park department can do programs and stuff. 
also, I hate to disappoint everybody, but that um, fire extinguisher is not authentic to the period. Um, yeah, that's there. And there's a little, dais, a little dais at the end where you can uh, speak from. Washington took the men by surprise. He, he hadn't said he was going to show up, and it kind of hinted that he wasn't going to come. But just after their meeting was started, Washington comes to the door. And he takes up his position here on the dais, right? He's, he's tall to begin with. Now he's sort of towering over everyone. And he gives a speech in which he denounces the anonymous letter. He says that whoever wrote this could very well have come from New York to be a British partisan who's trying to disrupt the American army and drive a wedge between the army and the civilian population. He uh, challenges the, the officers not to do anything rash that will sully their honor forever. Um, and he, he warns them you know, to go back to the path of virtue and really to trust him. That's the overall message. Trust, Washington says, trust me, I will handle it. Uh, I will talk to Congress. I trust Congress. I know that they are working on the problem. And if you trust me, then you should trust Congress as well. Right? Because I'm here and I'm telling you that this is who I put my faith in. And we're all together in this. That's the message that he sends. At the end of Washington's speech, he, uh, he uh, plans to read a, a letter that he's recently received from one of the delegates, a man named Joseph Jones, who is a, uh, a friend from Virginia. And Washington reads this letter. It's really uh, giving an update on conditions in Philadelphia. And it tells uh, Washington, look, look, we're working on the problem. We haven't ignored the, the army. Just the structure of our government is we don't have very much power and Congress moves slowly. That's just the way it is. We're, we're working on it, but we're moving slowly. And Washington is going to read this letter as evidence right, from the congressman directly that they're working on the problem, that it's just it's slow going. So kind of hang in there, be patient. Washington's speech, he read that, and he had uh, written this out himself previously. So he, his own handwriting, and he could read it un, unaided. The month before, in February, Washington had gotten his first pair of glasses, and he was still kind of getting used to them. And he takes out this letter from Joseph Jones, and it's kind of small. And it's in unfamiliar handwriting, and Washington can't read it without his glasses. Uh, so Washington fetches his glasses from, from his coat pocket, and while he's putting them on, there's kind of a, an awkward pause. You can see the glasses here in the picture. These are not like glasses today where you just kind of slip them on and off. Um, you have to kind of wrap them around the back to get the pressure right. Uh, these glasses, they actually remind me, my, my, my daughter, who's three, has, has glasses. Um, and she has like these little kid glasses, if you, you know those. Uh, they have like a strap in the back, and they're kind of hard to, to put on because she fidgets and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it it would have been very much like that. She kind of has George Washington glasses. Um, and uh, that's what it have been like. It takes some time to put them on. So there's an awkward pause. Now, being a gentleman is all about smoothing over little awkward pauses in life, all the little discomforts. It's just, you know, kind of easing over those things and making it all smooth, right? Smooth out the rough edges. So in that moment where there's silence there, uh, Washington says something to this effect. Uh, he says, you see, gentlemen, that I've not only grown gray, but also blind in your service. There's a couple other versions of the quote that are slightly different, but that's the general sentiment. Uh, you know, excuse me, gentlemen, I've gone blind, but also gray, gray and blind in, in your service. And that seems to break the, the tension. So that Washington leaves, and he uh, leaves the, the meeting to the officers, 
and they decide to denounce the uh, anonymous letters as, um, as infamous, and they pledge to put their faith in Washington, and they ask him to write to Congress on their behalf to you know, make an appeal to secure the, these pensions uh, and their back payments as soon as possible. So things go, Washington diffuses the tension, and he regains kind of the control and the trust of his, of his soldiers or his officers, and they put their faith in him. So that is the story of the Newberg conspiracy. Uh, and there's not a whole lot of uh, disagreement on that those are the, that's the basic shape of the story. There are these financial problems, political problems, an anonymous letter, and Washington put down the crisis with his speech. Okay. Now, is that all there was? Traditionally, the focus on this, uh, this episode has been that, that the anonymous letter and the crisis that broke out was part of a conspiracy, a conspiracy to use the officer's anger to frighten Congress and the states into enacting new taxes that would produce the revenue to pay the soldiers. All as part of kind of a strategy to increase the power of the central government. The strongest, um, the strongest articulation of the story uh, came from an historian named Richard Cohn. He was writing in, in an article he wrote in the William and Mary Quarterly in the uh, early 1970s. And he laid out, again, the strongest case in favor of the Newburgh conspiracy really being a, cons a conspiracy. And in uh, Cohn's version of events, there were figures in um, Philadelphia who were pursuing a two-track strategy, kind of leverage army discontent into new taxes. Uh, when I say figures in Philadelphia, uh, meaning people such as Alexander Hamilton, uh, who was a delegate to Congress from New York, as well as Robert Morris, who was the superintendent of finance, kind of like a treasury secretary. And uh, Morris's secretary, Governor Morris, who was uh, not related to, to Robert, although they shared the same last name and worked closely together, which must have been confusing um, in the, uh, the office there. So Cohn's argument is that those guys like uh, the two Morrises and Hamilton, they're stirring up trouble in pursuit of a two-track strategy. The first track of their strategy, supposedly, was to agitate the army, to make the officers angry, to get them all stirred up, even Cohn says, to the point of convincing officers that they might replace Washington with Horatio Gates. Horatio Gates was the second highest ranking uh, uh, officer in the uh, Hudson Highlands encampment, the second to Washington, and uh, he's their General Gates. Uh, Gates and Washington have been rivals earlier in the war. They didn't particularly like each other. Uh, Gates had been angling uh, after his victory at Saratoga to replace Washington as commander-in-chief. So there's, you know, no, there's a lot of uh, bad will between the, the, the two men. And uh, according to this argument, kind of holding out the possibility to Gates, encouraging Gates to kind of push Washington uh, aside and to stir up a kind of mutiny amongst some of the officers loyal to Gates. Okay. The idea being, I suppose, that that sort of threat of a mutiny would be really frightening and make the uh, congressmen and states fall into line quickly. Now, the second track of this is where things get really complicated. Uh, supposedly, according to Cohn, the uh, Philadelphians, like Hamilton and the Morrises, they didn't actually want uh, Gates to take over. They didn't want a full-scale mutiny. They just wanted the fear of one. 
So they double cross gates and tipped off Washington ahead of time so that he would be aware that they, Hamilton and the Morrises, were stirring up trouble that would lead Gates to challenge Washington's command. So that then Washington could be prepared to crush any of this um, in camp. Okay, so those are sort of the, the two tracks. Agitate the army, get them thinking that they can, that they can mutiny, and then Gates will lead them to, uh, to a more glorious future where they get everything they want from Congress, but then sort of double-crossing Gates at the end uh, so that he doesn't actually mutiny or take control by tipping off Washington to be ready for this threat. Okay? This is a picture of uh, Horatio Gates over here, here, over here to the right. This is supposedly uh, an example of the, the, the tip-off letter that Cohn uh, points to. So he points to this letter here where Hamilton writes to Washington, where Hamilton very gingerly is kind of telling Washington that there's a lot of trouble coming, and that, but that some good could come out of, out of this. If the claims of the army are waged with moderation, or urged with moderation, but firmness may operate on those weak minds which are influenced more by their apprehensions than their judgments. Then supposedly this is kind of coaching Washington that um, uh, to give a useful turn to this, this anger, uh, the difficulty will be to keep a complaining and suffering army within the bounds of moderation. Is this your excellency's influence must affect. So this has been interpreted as Hamilton sort of coaching Washington on what to do about the coming crisis or tipping him off that there's trouble coming, we're stirring it up, uh, but you'd be ready to clamp down on it. I think I pondered over this letter many, many hours uh, trying to figure out exactly what Hamilton meant. And it's hard because it's, it's extremely cagey. Uh, there's a lot, it's clear there's a lot going on beyond the bare words on the page. Trying to figure out what is he kind of doing? He's cryptic here. What I found is that it was helpful to interpret that letter in terms of uh, another letter that I found written around the same time, reporting on plans in Philadelphia in the mid middle part of February. And this is a letter I've come to call the expedient. And this is something that previous historians have not noticed, uh, have not really, really know, they've, they've known about the letter, but didn't notice the importance of it. And I've seen other scholars cite this letter, but not the portion that, I'm, that I found to be most meaningful. So this, this is something new and different that, that I found that I think gives greater context to Hamilton's letter. And it was, a, it was the report of a plan that was circulating in Philadelphia. And it was a, a reported by uh, Baron von Steuben, or von Steuben, I can never decide, no, what, it's easy to write, it's harder to pronounce it correctly, which that should really be. Uh, but the Baron, I'll, I'll get around that easily. He reports to General Knox that in Philadelphia, some uh, politicians had proposed an expedient. And the expedient was that the officers should supplicate Congress and the people to continue their subsistence, I mean, continue them in the field, until the necessary arrangements are made. So in other words, the expedient was that the officers should ask Congress for permission to stay in the field even after an armistice should, should arrive, to not send them home. So then they could just wait. There wouldn't be a final crisis, you know, do we, will we go home with our money or not? They would just wait and that would be okay, right? The, it would be under the uh, Congress's authority, so they wouldn't be challenging civilian rule. They wouldn't be making themselves in some kind of rogue army or something. It would be Congress directed them to do this. And then the officers could have the, the confidence that they eventually would be paid. Right? So both sides would get something. 
This is touchy, however, right? So the expedient included the provision that this demand ought to be made by the army through the commander in chief to Congress. Now, I think that's what Hamilton is really talking about here, kind of sounding out Washington to see how much, if any, role he'd be willing to play in uh, writing to Congress, helping Congress to, um, or, or helping the army to appeal to Congress. Very sort of carefully feeling him out, very cagely. So he, does, he doesn't want to push him too hard on this, but he kind of wants to know, where are you at, George? Uh, are you going to play ball with this if it were to be kind of formally proposed by somebody in Philadelphia? Okay, so that's what kind of thinking through. And I think that puts this whole letter in a different light. It's not quite the kind of, this is the, the conspiracy that we're, we're coming together, we're gonna to cause this trouble. It's more, what are you willing to do? What are you thinking? This plan here had the advantage, the expedient had the advantage of seeking Congress's permission. Keep everything above board. So I think that is what was going on in that, that letter Hamilton writes. Another piece of evidence that's often um, used to suggest that, uh, that, that General Gates was a particular threat to Washington is a letter that uh, Washington writes to Hamilton uh, in response to Hamilton's previous letter. And in, the, uh, in this letter, Washington's talking about some of the gossip that's been swirling around in, in camp. And he says, uh, if those ideas, uh, the, the gossip about Washington losing control of the army, that's the gossip that's going around. Washington doesn't have a good control in the army. Uh, our propaganda in the army uh, should be extensive. The source of these, these, uh, these rumors questioning Washington's control of things uh, may be easily uh, traced. As the old leaven, it is said, for I have no proof of it, is again beginning to work under the mask of the most perfect dissimulation and apparent cordiality. Now the uh, Washington biographer, Douglas Southall Freeman, he looked at this passage and he said, old leaven is really a reference to Horatio Gates. He said, it has to be, that uh, this is really saying that Washington suspects that Gates is stirring up all this trouble against him. It, uh, Freeman says, he says, the context makes it scarcely believable, I think, that it could be any other meaning other than Gates. Well, I was looking at this letter and thinking, well, oh, that Levin, that, that, that's a weird kind of thing to say. Is that like a, a secret code for somebody? That's, I think, what Freeman had assumed. So I started looking around for this and you know, you can, you can Google, Google is your friend on this kind of thing. So I put old leaven and I search around and I find really that old leaven is a saying from the 18th century. It is derived from a passage in the Bible, first uh, Corinthians chapter five, verses seven through eight. I have the, uh, the King James uh, version there for you to read. And it comes to saying to purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. Uh, old leaven was a saying that meant, referred to uh, prejudices irrationally retained. So it's kind of an attitude of kind of prejudice, bigoted attitude. Uh, that's what old leaven is. And really getting rid of that, it means to get rid of those old attitudes. I think the kind of old bigoted attitude that Washington's referring to is the idea that dogged him throughout the war, that he was excessively cool to the, to the army, that he was not passionate enough in their cause that he was indecisive. Uh, those are things that had, uh, criticized Washington throughout the war. And he's saying, look, it sounds like that's the same old criticism. There's nothing to it, but guys, they, they, they passed that around, even at this late date in the war. So old leaven is not Gates, it's an attitude. 
I think when you look at the full context, uh, then that makes a much much more sense um, rather than guessing that it was it was a person. That little bit of uh, Bible detective work there, I think, makes that phrase, that letter, much more understandable. Gates's mindset as he um, as he uh, in, in March of 1783, I think, also argues strongly against him being involved in any kind of um, push against Washington, which calls into question the conspiracy as a whole. Uh, Gates was not someone who wanted to lead some new crusade against Washington or on behalf of the officers to march on, uh, to threaten Philadelphia politicians or Congress or anything. Gates's mind was with his wife at their home in Traveler's Rest, uh, Virginia. That's the name of his plantation. Here's a, a picture from uh, of Traveler's Rest, his, his house there. Uh, Elizabeth Gates, his wife, was dying, and she would, in fact, die um, in that summer of 1783. And Gates is always asking for his friends for information on her, on her condition and looking forward to letters from her. And he writes this letter uh, in March, so just a few days before the, the crisis hits, saying about how much he really wants to go home and saying, you know, nothing but more favorable accounts from you, right, that yours are getting better, or my own disability to travel shall detain me here after the 15th. Uh, the roads are just bad. He can't get there. He says they're, they're, they're getting better every day, and he, he plans to be out of there as soon as he can. Um, and really, he eventually does leave in the, the second half of March, gets home uh, in time to spend, a, a, I think, about a week or so with Elizabeth before she dies. So that's pretty clear from Gates's letters what his mindset is. One further piece of evidence very quickly. Uh, another letter that's often cited as proof of a conspiracy is a passage where Washington admonishes Hamilton about using the army in politics. In this letter of April 1783, contains this line where Washington admonishes Hamilton, saying, the army, considering the irritable state it is in, its sufferings and composition, is a dangerous instrument to play with. Now again, supposedly this has been cited as evidence that Washington knew Hamilton was behind the, the letter in stirring up the trouble with the army. They're telling him, don't toy with the army. The problem, though, is that that letter that Washington's writing in April, it is not referring specifically to the crisis of a month before. A new issue had arisen. Uh, at the end of March, news of the peace arrives, and the soldiers expect, okay, now we're going to get paid. This is it. And they still weren't paid. And the rumors started to circulate that Morris was starting, to, Robert Morris was delaying things on purpose to use the army to pressure Congress. And all those kind of rumors started to circulate again. And that's where Washington is telling Hamilton, okay, don't play with us. That's the irritable condition they're in, is this post-armistice uh, post news condition. They really expect to be going out anytime soon. Uh, that's what he's talking about. Not the stuff a month before, it's this, the new issue that had arisen uh, more recently. And Ham uh, Washington writes this really nice apology to, to, to Hamilton a little bit later, basically saying, I was so tired, I'm not sure exactly what I said. And I might have said the wrong thing. Um, I wasn't you know, really saying that you're trying to stir up the army. I'm just saying, when you involve the army in politics, don't count on them all to be on one side. They have a lot of different opinions, and their mood right now is they want money from somebody. So whether the state that offers them the money or the national government that offers the money, they're going to take whoever it is first. So don't count on them to support any kind of scheme involving the army on the side of, of a, a national policy. They don't think like that. 
So whatever your scheme is, it's not going to work. So I think it's really charming, Washington mentioning how tired he is. You can just imagine how exhausted he is. He can't keep all this stuff straight anymore. And I think that gives you a better idea of what was going on at that very moment. It's not the earlier crisis, it's a new one that has come up. I want to conclude here by talking about the true danger of the moment. Because I do think that the Newberg conspiracy was dangerous, even if a mutiny or coup or something like that was not on the table. I think it was in danger, dangerous in part because everybody assumed there was a conspiracy. And uh, even Washington thought that there must be some kind of conspiracy. He wrote to Hamilton uh, talking about what's going on. He says, there is something very mysterious in this business. He, he thinks something's up. Now, everybody in the 18th century thought everything was a conspiracy. That's just the way people thought. Uh, but that doesn't mean it was true. However, even if it's not true, the assumption of conspiracy takes on a life of its own. And that's one way in which that March 15th meeting could have gone very badly. If Washington had not been up to the challenge of the moment, it could have gone south very quickly with officers being very angry and Washington discredited. The night before Washington gives this speech, uh, the quartermaster, Timothy Pickering, he writes to his wife, you can imagine the quiet of the night, writing to his wife, the meeting's coming next, the next day. He says, should rashness govern the proceedings, the consequences may be such as are dreadful even an idea. God forbid the event should be so calamitous. So even if there wasn't a conspiracy, still the meeting could have gone very badly and produced very negative results. You know how that is. You get angry people in a room together. Even if they get along individually, you put them all together, one person starts, starts talking and getting angry, it spills over very quickly. So things could have gone very wrong. That brings me to the end of, of my presentation here. Uh, you can see some of my uh, contact information there. Uh, my website, email, and, and things like that to stay in touch. Uh, if there are questions remaining uh, after our, our uh, question and answer period here, I'm very happy to uh, answer any questions you might have in the future. And I want to thank you for, uh, for coming tonight, listening to me, and I look forward to uh, speaking with some of you. Uh, I, I shouldn't put it that way. I look forward to, forward to, speaking, with, I look forward to speaking with all of you, but there will only be time for some of you. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, David. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Mary now. If you didn't get a chance to ask your question, now is the time to drop that into the chat. Thank you. There were a few good ones that came in. Let's see. Uh, Ambrose asks, who is your candidate for the author of the anonymous letter to Congress? I thought so, that was a good one to start with. Yes. So, so the, the anonymous letter is to the other officers. Um, and it's pretty clear it's John Armstrong Jr. I don't think there's any, any big debate about that. Uh, John Armstrong Jr., uh, well, I don't think there's any big reason. And to my mind, there's not a reason to question that. Uh, Arm John Armstrong Jr. was an aide to General Gates, and apparently he and some of his uh, friends got together at uh, Gates's house uh, one night, and they wrote the, this, the letter together. Uh, Armstrong wrote it, and they kind of, you know, helped him out with it, and they copied it and distributed it. Uh, that's a piece of evidence, you know, it's always been cited. This is in Gates' house. He must have known what was happening. Uh, you know, even if he's asleep upstairs, he can hear these guys downstairs. And he's going to say, hey, hey, boys, what, what are you boys up to down there, right? He knows something's going on, why they're there so late. Uh, so Gates is certainly uh, blameworthy in that sense. He doesn't put a stop to this. Um, but yeah, I think John Armstrong Jr. is the, the best candidate. It's really funny. Armstrong, he can't come right out and say that he did this, but he also wants credit for it. Uh, and he sometimes criticized people say, well, he wasn't talented enough to write this. It couldn't have been him. 
<laughs> of course I was talented enough. I mean, not that I did, but I could have. <laughs> so, so it's really funny the way he has to both, you know, push himself away, but then he was, he wants people to know he did it. Um, so uh, John Armstrong Jr. I think is the, is, is overwhelming the, the best candidate to have written that letter. Okay. Doug asks, how do the soldiers get by while all this was going on? Were their expenses being paid by Congress? How did they support their families back home? They borrow. Um, I mean, that's basically, yeah, they, they, they get credit and they borrow. More from the um, French? Uh, they borrow, borrow from, and the officers are borrowing, their families borrowing from friends. A lot of them borrow from uh, Robert Morris, I mean, personally, privately. Uh, General Gates has bar borrows from, from uh, Robert Morris. And some of the letters are talking about, you know, Morris is writing, yes, I sent the money to, to Elizabeth. Don't worry. She's taking care of She's everything she needs. Uh, in camp, I mean, they have kind of everything they need. Uh, that's actually one of the reasons why Congress didn't make paying them a priority, because they said, well, you have shelter and, and food, and it's not too rancid. What else do you want? Um, <laughs> like, like, yeah. uh, Morris at one point says, yeah, I'm not going to pay the soldiers because they'll just spend it on whiskey. You know the kind of people they are. Uh, which is really mean. So yes, uh, the families would just borrow the money from family, friends, resources, you know, not pay it back for years at a time and kind of scrape through the best they could. Uh, your, what was your research with doing this book? I mean, just even going back to the letter between Knox and von Steuben um, and how you viewed that letter just a little bit differently than other historians have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my principal sources were the letters of the participants, which have been collected and are being published in these wonderful editions for the major figures like Washington and Hamilton and those guys. Uh, but then a lot of the officers, you know, people uh, saved those letters and they microfilmed them. Uh, the von Steuben papers are, are microfilmed. They even have like, like printout transcripts at the end of some of them, which I, I just want to hug the person who did that, you know, 40, 50 <laughs> years ago. That's wonderful. Um, they're well, awesome, just, my favorite people, don't right, worry. <laughs> uh, you just, I mean, it's just reading through these things, and you know, I found some things that just people have read that letter, but just didn't recognize the significance of what he was talking about. Uh, and this is a lesson I, I try to share with my students is, yeah, you, you know, one way to do research is to find some, you know, hidden chest of letters that nobody's ever seen before. Okay, you're lucky if you can do that, or you can read well-known sources in a different way. And I mean, you're a unique person writing at a different time. And yeah, you'll have different thoughts on, on things. And that's, I think, just what happened. I just came across with a fresh, you know, fresh, um, fresh perspective and noticed something that others hadn't. Um, yeah, so it wasn't, I didn't do a lot of mining there, but yeah, I think you know, that, that's a diamond there. You just gotta, uh, you know, buff it up a bit. So that was a really nice uh, discovery that was just kind of waiting there. The archivist had put it there, right? Waiting and kind of grasped the significance of what was really there. Awesome. Um, one of the most conspiratorial persons in American history is James Wilkinson. What role did he play or might have played in this? I, I don't believe Wilkinson was involved. Um, no. I don't, I don't think he was in, I don't, I don't know. I don't think he, I don't think he was there in Newburgh. He may have been out, out of the army by that point. Um, Wilkinson is involved in the prior Conway cabal, where uh, Gates was uh, kind of angling to replace Washington. Uh, uh, Wilkinson, I think, has the, the incriminating letters or something. I, I forget exactly his role. 
but he is involved in that earlier that that uh, earlier plot. Uh, I don't. I never came across him directly involved in the uh, the Newberg events. Gates is always very cranky. Every time mm -hmm. somebody covers him, he's always just like that cranky, cranky old guy. <laughs> uh, Sergio asks, "This is a big one. What is your take on Cohn's language on the conspiracy? This is speculation. My speculation could imply the evidence cited." Uh, an event that never even happened using evidence that probably never existed or was it immediately destroyed an educated guest cannot be gauged without certainty right so that's one of the problems with Cohn's article i think i think he was trying to be well i don't know i think he was trying to be you know circumspect about his evidence but it's that language that that was just side of the question i think like like an event that might not have happened an evidence that never existed mm -hmm. well I mean, we could only go on the evidence that existed, um, that, that exists now. I mean, this is one, again, I talked to my students about this, survivorship bias, right? Just because something survives doesn't mean it's important. And just because it does, something doesn't exist now doesn't mean, you know, it wasn't important then, right? Um, so that is, that is an issue. Uh, one of the things I'd really like to know is on the night that the letters, the, the anonymous letter was written, these officers who gathered to write that letter, they talked to each other face to face. Uh, and they didn't write letters, you know, they weren't writing letters to each other that would have been captured that and we could have saved it. So whatever they said face to face, is just gone. I mean, it's gone, right? Now that doesn't mean that they, they of course they talked to each other. They didn't stand around mute, right? This, they talked to each other. We don't know what they said. Um, I try to be very open about what, what I know and what I, I don't know, what, you know, what I think a reasonable case is, kind of lay out all the evidence there and you know, be honest, this, this is my case about what happened. Someone could go do the same research and come to a different conclusion. And I'm completely, um, I'm completely comfortable with that. Uh, that. That would be fine. But yes, yeah, so just kind of laying out, this is the evidence. This is as far as I am comfortable taking it. Uh, I'm very clear about, about all of those things. But yeah, I, I don't, like I think, as Sergio, I think, um, mentioned, yeah, it just makes me uncomfortable to say things like uh, evidence that might not have ever existed. That's, I don't like that. Speculation, sure. I mean, that's kind of what you do when the evidence, right, you, gets you so far. Okay, that, speculate, fine. Uh, but yeah, things that didn't exist, I think that's, that's too far for me. Okay. Historian smack talk, I like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, Renee asks a great question about what I think most people remember from the Newberg conspiracy is, do you feel Washington with the glasses was an action by design to garner empathy and to remind the troops he'd been with them the whole time or was it a little bit of acting? So this is another thing I pondered for a long, a long, long time, right? What, what is he doing with these glasses? Uh, did he plan this the whole time? Did he know this was going to have this effect? Did he know he's going to say that? That I mean, wonderful line. I get asked a lot. So sometimes I get asked a lot. Did he really say this? Come on. Right, this is, must have been invented later on. And no, there, I, I think he did say it. I mean, there's evidence from the day after that, that he said this. I think, and I go through this in the book in, in detail, I think that um, I think that Washington came ready to read that letter. Uh, and of course, he brought his glasses with them, ready to read, if he's, he glasses with them, to read something. Um, and it was, you know, it was kind of a big deal for everybody to see him wearing those glasses. Uh, I think, so I think he, he may have come ready to call, it, call an audible, just kind of feeling out how things were progressing. And if he felt like, 
he needed to read that letter, he would read the letter. Um, if he felt like uh, he just could just kind of leave the letter with the officers, because he brought some other documents too, to kind of leave with them to examine after he had left, then maybe if he thought the speech went well enough, he might have just left it for them to peruse afterwards. So whatever it is, I think he feels like, okay, I got to read this. I think the remark that sort of hits home, the um, I go gray and blind, that kind of thing, I think that's improvised because there would be this kind of awkward pause that you might not plan ahead, but you could feel at the moment, uh oh, it's quiet here, right? Everybody's looking at me. And that is kind of the natural thing a gentleman would do, just gonna say something that just moved everything over. So I think it's partly planned and partly spontaneous is the way it worked out. And I don't know that Washington could have known it would have this dramatic effect uh, on the, the officers. He might have hoped that it was the logic and the words of the letter that would have the, the effect of sealing things, not you know, appearing, appearing vulnerable in that moment. Um, but that's the way it worked out. And it was just, you know, whatever it was, it was uh, improvised, it was spectacular um, as a stagecraft in that moment. It's a great line, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, I looked through, I, I can't do it very well talking about it, but um, there's some evidence in some of the manuscripts that are left behind about where there are some particular marks in that, that letter from Joseph Jones that suggests to me that Washington had, um, he was gonna cut out some material, right? So he was going, he wasn't gonna read the whole letter. Cause the whole letter, it goes into some other topics that aren't relevant. He was talking about Vermont and stuff that doesn't matter to the officers. Uh, Washington's marked out those passages. I think he, he marked out those passages to cut out, which suggests that you couldn't do that on the fly, right? So he may have been ready to, to read this if it, if it came to that. So, uh, yeah, so I go through that, you know, in a more textual way. You can't do it talking visually, but, um, you know, check that out if you're interested. All right. Steve asks, did the soldiers ever get their pay and pensions after all of this? Yes. So once everything, after all of this ordeal, yes, they, they do get a settlement um, and they do receive some, some money. Uh, now, it's actually not from the government itself. Robert Morris uh, goes on the hook, he signs, uh, he, he goes into debt personally, some $750,000, right, that he issues personally as IOUs to make sure that the uh, officers and the soldiers have uh, some money to go home with. Um, and then those notes can circulate as if they were their currency in the way that it does in the 18th century. But yeah, so it's basically Robert Morris takes responsibility for paying, for paying the soldiers at the end of the war. Now, they don't actually get the whole value that they were really due because uh, some of these guys are so desperate for money that they, they, they trade their notes very quickly for goods, uh, for transportation, for new clothes, all, all that kind of stuff they needed. And very speculators, merchants, they accept those Morris notes at a, at a discount. So, you know, they might buy, have a $100 note and they only get, you know, $60 worth of value out of it. Uh, so they don't get the full, they don't realize the full value of what they should have been paid. Uh, going along with finances, Tim asks, how was the amount sent to the states for cost of war determined? <laughs> Magic. <laughs> um, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as far as I can, I, yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. How do you, in the 18th century, you don't have Excel, all right? How do you keep track of all of these expenses and then uh, divvy, divvy up that whole account? They, they, they're clerks that basically did that. They had all the paperwork that had been submitted. Uh, by the various authorizations for spending and the various clerks who spent money, supply officials, buying stuff for the RV. And they had all that paperwork, all the account books and everything. And they came up with a number. 
I mean, down to like, it's not even like the pennies, like a half penny and stuff like that, what the exact number was. And I'm very suspicious that this is anything like reality, but that uh, those accountants did, did just amazing work uh, with their, you know, with their quill pens and their, their account books. Uh, no calculators either, putting all of this together. I, I, I don't know what they did it, but they had, I guess, very, very skilled accountants is how, they, is how they did it in the end. Oof, I couldn't imagine doing that today. Because yeah. <laughs> I rely on my calculator on my phone for most mm -hmm. every single thing known to mankind. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to wrap it up with my last question. If you were able to dine with anybody at Francis Tavern, who would it be and why? Oh, I think I would like to dine no with the, 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 the Morrises, I think would be fun. Uh, Robert and, uh, and Governor Morris. Uh, uh, Governor Morris was, uh, always had these, these, these great quips. And I think, uh, I think Robert Morris is, um, he's always looked stern, looked no nonsense, like all business. But he was also known to, to throw some of the most, um, the most lavish balls in Philadelphia, where he was from. So he has kind of a, um, a reputation for that. So I think the, the Morrises would be fun to, uh, to, to dine with um, at Francis Tavern if we ever invent the, the time machine to bring them into the future. Because I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not going back to the past, because I want there still to be a, uh, you know, a, oh, men's no. room, a men's room you could use that's functioning. No, they have to come here. <laughs> Yeah. I think they no, they have to come here. Absolutely. Governor Morris is definitely on like my top five to mm -hmm. dine with and get just drunk with because I feel yeah. like it'd be a good time. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you all so, so much for attending this lecture. Thank you, David, for a wonderful presentation. I will hand it back to Sarah for any last notifications, comments, concerns, questions. All right. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mary and David. That was great. Thank you all of you who submitted questions. And thank you for bearing with our brief technical issues at the beginning. Thank you to those of you who have donated. You are helping keep the museum going. Uh, a reminder that we are open to the public again. You can reserve a ticket by going to our website, francistavernmuseum.org. If you are in the area and able to stop by, definitely check that out. Remember to check our website or join our mailing list to stay up to date with all of our virtual programs. Because although we are open, we are keeping the programs virtual for now. If you enjoyed and would like to donate, you may do that on our website as well. And a last note, if you missed any part of the lecture or want to listen to it again or share it with someone who couldn't be here, it will be posted on our website as well. FrancisTavernMuseum.org. Visit often. <laughs> Keep up to date with everything. Thank you so much for joining us and have a great evening, everyone. Good night. <laughs>